listening to Ping, a new podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, Robbie Mitchell. If you've missed our first shows and are wondering what this podcast is all about, each fortnight we chat with internet researchers and operators from around the world about the research they are doing and insights they've gained into the well-being of the internet. For those who've been listening, thanks for the shares, feedback and reviews. And if you've subscribed, thanks for that too. Okay, let's jump into our fifth show. It's been a busy end of the year for the internet research and measurement community with numerous events happening, still mainly online, but some face-to-face and hybrid. If you've been following the APNIC blog, you'll have seen that APNIC's chief scientist, Jeff Houston, has been keenly participating and reporting on many of these events, including the recent DNS Operations Analysis and Research Centre workshop, OARC 36. One presentation at this event tied together several themes that Jeff has blogged about and discussed on this show this year, including the need for greater transparency in the industry when discussing things that have gone wrong so that the community can learn from them to make sure they don't happen again, and the tribulations of managing and securing the DNS. Jeff, welcome back to Ping. Uh, hi, Robbie, and uh, hi, everyone else. Yes, it's, uh, it's good to be back. Many things have happened a few meetings that I've attended. And uh, one of those meetings that I found particularly fascinating was uh, DNS operations and research. I've said in the past many times that now that we've broken the address space for the internet, V4, its track record is not good. Um, Names are more important than ever. And I've spent a lot of time in the naming space because it's fascinating. But equally, I think it's now right at the heart of the internet. And so today, I'd like to actually talk about in in a little bit of detail a presentation that was made at that OARC meeting on the um, curious story of Slack and their thoroughly laudable efforts to DNS sign their domain name. And you kind of think, well, great. How could that possibly go wrong? Well, (laughs) they they talked about how it did. And it was certainly a, a good story, an interesting story. So we can we can wander into that, Robbie. Let, let's have a have a wander. I do enjoy a wander, Jeff. So to give some context to our dear listeners, the interesting story that you're referring to is the 24-hour outage that Slack experienced on the 30th September this year, where one percent of its users weren't able to access Slack, which is almost a hundred thousand users. So quite a few. While we plan to wander into the technical details of what happened and what we can learn from it, we'll also wander into how this was a great example of a subject that you've been discussing since APNIC 52 earlier this year, Jeff, as well as on the show. Check out our first episode, if you haven't already, on the Facebook 2021 outage about operators coming forward to confess and share what went wrong. In this case, the Slack operators published a great blog post detailing everything We'll share a link to this in the description below and courageously followed this up by discussing it directly with their DNS peers at DNS OARC. For those who haven't been following though, Jeff, can you describe the situation and lead up that Slack operators faced on the 30th of September? Well, you have to actually wind it back a little bit further than that, that Robbie, and I, I think the first day was the 7th of September. But yes, I'm like, first things first, Slack did do an amazingly detailed postmortem of what went wrong which I still say is rare, but incredibly helpful to understand 
the whys and hows of, of, of how Slack got caught up in this. And I must admit, in looking through it and thinking about it, it's actually hard to say that they did anything wrong. An abundance of caution, yes, but wrong? Yeah. Let's, let's go through it anyway, because it was certainly the third time bad <laughs> rather than third time good. So the first time, they'd kind of assembled all of their ducks in, in a very good row. They'd got a whole bunch of tools together to look at what was going on. They were using DNS viz. They were monitoring everything as much as they could. They were trying to make sure that when they transitioned from an unsigned to a signed domain, everything was going to work. And, you know, I, I think it was actually a really good approach to what they did. They had dnschecker.org to ensure that resolution was working. They'd done handcrafted tests and they were ready to go. Now, when I say ready to go, don't forget in some ways that people don't roll their own DNS if they're serious about the DNS. Uh, if you're really serious about the DNS, you don't do it. <laughs> it's, it's the modern way of doing this. They had outsourced their DNS for their main domain, Slack.com. They used Amazon's Route 53 as the authoritative DNS server. And they'd actually used NS1, slightly more recent entrant, but still a, a decent entrant, that actually has advanced traffic management for all of their subdomains. And so while they, in theory, operated their DNS zone, uh, in point of fact, it was Amazon Route 53 that was the primaries, and NS1 did their uh, subdomains. Now, is that best practice to have one server looking after the .com domain and another server looking after subdomains? Well... After the dine attack, it seems to be best practice to put your eggs in many baskets. You see, while previously it used to be kind of a, well, I can't build a DNS infrastructure that's big enough to absorb a massive attack. So let's not. I'll outsource it and place my DNS in the hands of somebody who can absorb a few uh, gigabits per second, possibly petabits, who knows, of, of attack traffic. If I'm serious about this stuff, I'm going to use someone else that has a much bigger infrastructure than I can afford to put up. And so Route 53 is certainly there. But as I said, after the dine experience, a lot of folk wanted to use two or three or more so that even if some nasty person took out Route 53, other things would still survive. Now, Slack hadn't gone that far. They'd actually done Route 53 was all of Slack.com and some subdomains were done by delegated into NS1. So common, yeah, sort of. And the motivation is, as I said, trying to make sure that folk with massive capacity were looking after that zone so that they couldn't casually be taken out. This is good. So they kind of lined up all their tests. They've got a decent engineering team. They understood what they were going to do, and they started to roll it out. Now, the first time they tried, the problem was that what they called a large ISP in the US had an outage in their infrastructure and they didn't want to start doing a transition to Slack at the same time. Slack is very widely used and kind of combining outages is sort of getting messy, particularly if your major concern is with the end users. So on the 7th of September, before they even got very far, they uh, stopped and came back again. So now we move on to attempt number two the next day. 
I suppose the issue with some of this infrastructure, there's kind of two things to happen when you DNS sex sign a zone. And this is like, if you will, even a delegation. You have to do something in your zone, but that's not all. You have to tell your parent that you've done it. And your parent sort of slots in and does the final sort of lock-in. Now, let me get detailed here. What you actually do is you sign your zone. Most folk do it statically if the zone is small. So they generate a key pair. They use the private key to generate digital signature records for every entry in their zone file, which creates a new zone file, which has signatures in it. Oddly enough, they then publish it. They serve it. But that's still not signed because no one's going to know to look for it is the theory. What you then do, which is the final step, is once you've signed your zone and you're serving the signed zone, you pass the hash of your public key to your parent who publishes it in the parent zone as a signed DS record, a delegation signer record. It actually functions a lot like what we call an NS record, a name server record, but it says something slightly different. This delegated zone is signed, and here is a hash of the public key of the key pair used as the zone entry point. So for validation, etc., how do I know that signature that was used to sign the zone is valid? Well, I told my parent, and my parents signed it with their key who in turn has passed it to their parent, who in turn, who in turn, and and eventually you get to the root key and you know that everything is good. So Slack started down the path. They signed the zone and passed that signed zone to be published. Now, in actual fact, they didn't really do that. Amazon does a live signer by all reports. And so they instructed Amazon to actually, when it started serving Slack.com, to add signature records against Slack.com. Now, what they had was a zone that looked like it signed, but its parent didn't. So in theory, none of us were any the wiser. In theory. In practice. (laughs) So we move on to another sort of trouble point in the wonderful world of the DNS which is the thing about CNAME records at the apex. You see, we use the DNS for many things these days, and translating names to IP addresses is merely one of the many wondrous things the DNS can do. But Akamai, and I think previously to that, um, it was uh, Netscape, actually used the DNS as a steering mechanism What they found was that most people's DNS resolvers lived very, very close to the end user. And those DNS resolvers asked the authoritative server. So if I take the IP address of the people asking me questions and I use some kind of IP to, you know, geography mapping, if I can locate where your resolver is, I can probably locate you. Okay, so what if I have a server in Australia, a server in Japan, a server on the west coast of the US, one in the east coast, et cetera, et cetera, 
then depending on the IP address that is asking me the question, I can give a particular answer for that set of users. So everyone who is located into Australia, I hand them back the IP address of the server in, I don't know, Sydney. But if you're in Japan, I will not do that. If your resolver is in Japan, I will hand you the IP address of resolver in Japan and so on, right? This is great. And it's served Akamai really well because they've been using this for decades now. And some issues with open DNS resolvers notwithstanding, it's worked relatively well. But when folk push their content into a content distribution network, they're kind of reluctant to hand over the entire keys of the DNS to the content network. And quite frankly, too, what if you want to use two content networks? What if you want to use Akamai and Fastly? or Akamai and Fastly and Cloudflare, you know? What if you're really worried about that earlier dine outage and don't want to put your eggs in one basket? Well, you can hardly sign all of the DNS over to one of them. Now, the way we resolved this in terms of what the content industry did was use an alias record. What is an alias record, Jeff? So if you have your content served by, let's say, Akamai, you will find that all of your records have edgecast.net in them. Your own record is actually aliased via a CNAME record into a name inside Akamai's namespace that they can then do traffic engineering, load balancing and location. CNAMEs are great. In fact, if they hadn't have been invented for this, we would have invented them for that. It's fantastically useful, right? Except there is a problem with CNAMEs that it doesn't just translate based on what you're asking for. It translates every query type, A, quad A, NS, all of those different query types in the DNS. I'm after one of these or one of those. A C name unambiguously just sends you off to the new name because that's the whole idea of an alias. It's an alias for every query type, not just one or two. Now, this means you can't have a C name at what we call the apex of the zone, the zone entry point, the point where you've got a start of authority record, otherwise known as an SOA. Because if the rule is a C name is the only thing on a name, you can't have a C name and an SOA. That's not the rule. Now, a lot of people do this. And most of the time, most resolvers just don't care because it's a relatively obscure rule, except, and this is, this is what caught them the second time, if folk thought, some resolvers, that the zone was signed because they hadn't sort of gone backwards to validate it, they just found that there was a, a, a record at the C name that included a digital signature, an RRSIG they start being a bit stricter. So validating one of those, as you said, the C name looks after IPv4 addresses, IPv6 addresses, NS addresses. So it could be validating one of those and it would give back a validation result. And, and if they're trying to validate that digital signature, then at that point you start to worry for some resolvers whether they've actually obeyed that rule in RFC 2181. Is this at the zone apex? And, and in Slack's case, the answer was, oh, yeah. And, and those resolvers went, oops. So they hadn't actually completed the lockstep. They hadn't set the delegation sign of the DS record up to the .com zone. 
they were still kind of unsigned, but they were seeing a small number of issues. So jam on the brakes, turn everything off again, stop Route 53 doing signature records. And in theory, you know, there was a little bit of mop-up with caching, but it kind of worked and, and fixed the issue. I'm not sure that they fixed the issue. They, <laughs> they substituted something that a few folk have invented, which is non-standard. So they went totally down the route and used what we call an alias record, which is unique um, to a few folk, including NS1. An alias record is something in your zone file that doesn't tell the client anything, but it tells the server of the zone to do the magic, to translate almost invisibly. So it sort of flicks domains around without the user being actually aware that you've transitioned into someone else's DNS. And so they updated it to alias records going, well, in theory, NS1 know what they're talking about. We're all good. Let's just do this again. Okay, bit nervous, but off they do. And they took a bit of time. They set everything up. And on September the 30th, they were ready. So they enabled DNSSEC signing on all of their NS1-hosted sub-delegated zones. And then they gave the instruction to Route 53, again, start adding signatures. And then they instructed Route 53 to hand that DS record off to the owner of the .com zone, taking that step. Now, there are a few things to note about the DNS and DNSSEC. The one thing to be aware of is there's an awful lot of queries for names that don't exist. In fact, if you run a root zone server and you know, everyone except 12 people don't. <laughs> but if you do, you would find that almost you know, 90% of all the names that you actually have to worry about are names that don't exist. So if you worry about that, how do you prove a name doesn't exist? You see, digital signatures sign what's good. Everything else is bad, literally everything else. So how do you sign everything else? You can't. You can't sign what's bad. You can only sign what's good. Now, how do you know that the NX domain answer you got or this query type doesn't exist in the record? You know, there's no such resource record set for this query. How do you know that? How can you prove that digitally with a digital signature? Because you can't sign something that doesn't exist. So they invented after a lot of trial and error and effort and re-effort and so on, they invented this curious record called the NSEC record. Now, the NSEC record is actually a way of saying this name doesn't exist and here's how you can validate it. Here's how to prove it. And so the way it works is you take a zone file and you order it alphabetically, lexical ordering. So now you'll have a zone file where A, B, C, D, E, you know, you, you do the whole ASCII ordering system. And then you do what's called striding records. So let's say you have two entries in your zone file, A and G. So a.jeff.com, g.jeff.com. Apologies to who owns jeff.com. <laughs> when you sign the zone, you actually now generate a new record 
against A. And you say the next record after A is G and sign it. So this is a funny record. It says nothing exists between A and G. So if you happen to ask for b.jeff.com, it will send you back this magic NSEC record that says there's no such domain. So the answer is NX domain. And here's an additional record, which is an NSEC record, that you can use to validate that nothing exists between A and G. Nothing. So the NSEC record spans the zone. So in every gap, there's an NSEC record to fill it. Right, So now I can kind of prove a record doesn't exist because if I can validate that NSEC record, I'm good. I know that in the original zone, there was nothing between A and G. There's nothing between two consecutive records which are well-ordered. And this is securing the DNS because you're just telling recipients if you're getting something from this address, that doesn't exist. Hasn't been signed, it's unsafe. I, the original zone author, has put nothing between, you know, A and G, nothing between these two records. If someone tries to answer in between those two records with, you know, well, B exists, it's a lie. Because if they don't know my key, they can't do a signature, it, you should reject this as a lie. Okay. So this is good. Let's take this a little bit further. What if I. I'm only doing V4. I've only got A records. And I ask for a quad A, a V6 record. Now, it doesn't exist. I'm not doing V6, naughty me. Now, what you get back in the DNS normally is what we call a no data answer. It's not NX domain. So I'm not saying the name doesn't exist, but I'm not giving you an answer. There is no authoritative data. And so what you should do to interpret that is you're asking a query type where there is no defined data, no data. So now I've got to sign that if I'm going to sign the signature. How do I sign it? Again, I can't sign what doesn't exist. And so in a masterpiece of reuse, which is going to come back and bite someone pretty soon now because I'm building up the story. Uh, in a masterpiece of reuse, we reuse the NSEC record. And what we do in the NSEC record is actually include a bit vector. And let's say that A is bit position zero, quad A is bit position two, and so on. All right? We enumerate every single defined resource record type. And in that NSEC record, we actually include that bit vector that says these pieces of data, these, these pieces, these resource sets are defined for this record. If it's not there, it's not defined. So if I haven't got a quad A record for that name, then I won't put a one in that bit slot. And the signed record says, absolutely, there is no point asking for a quad A. It doesn't exist. And so I'm kind of there, right because I'll hand you back an NSEC record if you're asking for a name that doesn't exist, and I'll also set it to uh, NX domain. And if you're asking for a type that doesn't exist, where the name actually does exist, I will also send you back an NSEC record, but in a no data that says, test this, it's signed, test this, that query type isn't defined, okay? 
So now let's introduce a couple more factors to make Slack's life interesting. Uh, Factor number one, they decided to use a wildcard domain at the top of Slack.com. So they actually defined every possible name in Slack.com with a wildcard record. Now, there's nothing wrong with a wildcard record. DNSSEC handles it just fine. Here's a wildcard record. Knock yourself out, right? You can sign that wildcard record. There's an NSEC signature, although why you use an NSEC but no such domain with a wildcard is kind of interesting because every name is now defined. So you're never going to get back an NSEC record if you ask for any name because every name is now defined. Good. Factor number one, there's a wildcard in the zone. Factor number two, and we're down in the cascading faults part of this, they only use V4 for the service. Slack, yes, is one of those, afraid to admit it, V4-only services. Can't get there on V6. There is no Quad A. Now, let me do a quick digression here, because cascading faults, we digress all over the place. Uh, When we first designed TCP, we were living in a world of acute unreliability. Packets got dropped, not one in a billion, or even one in a million. There was less than one in a thousand. You know, lots of packets got dropped. And so we built our protocols to be astonishingly resilient and persistent. So let's start up a session, you and I. I want to talk to you. So I'm going to send you a certain TCP packet to open up the conversation called a SYN packet, S-Y-N, for synchronized SYN. It's kind of, hello, and I put in a couple of magic numbers, sequence numbers, to say, I want to start a conversation, and I'm going to start it at random number. Now, if you get that SYN packet, you're going to answer me with an acknowledgement. We call it a SYNAC because it acknowledges the fact that you sent me a packet and echoes back the number that I told you and also says, okay, let's start this game. Here's my magic number. So I get back an acknowledgement of my number and get back, if you will, a start of your number. I send back an ACK of your number, and guess what? We've just done a three-way handshake, and we're cool. I can send you data. You can send me data. We're off and running. Now, what if I don't get back a SYNAC? I've sent you a SYN. That's me drumming my fingers on the table, getting impatient. What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to assume that the packet got lost, so I'll send another. Nothing happens. Better send another. Now, how long do I retry before I give up on you? Well, if it's Microsoft Windows, it was, I think, 21 seconds. And it was 1369 or something. Uh, There were four attempts, and then you gave up. On some Unix or Linux implementations, it was as long as 108 seconds. You know, that's two minutes. People don't live that long. What happens when we introduce two protocols, V4 and V6? Well, it's an obvious answer, obvious. We try and make a connection in V6, and if that doesn't work, we'll go move to V4. You're referring to the process of happy eyeballs, Jeff. Happy eyeballs. How long does it take to work out V6 isn't there? Well, if you're on Linux, the answer is two minutes. (laughs) Even Windows, it's 21 seconds. So these are very unhappy eyeballs. People aren't that patient. 
And so what we did instead was to compress this. And so the current implementations of so-called happy eyeballs in the dual stack world is you ask for a V6 record and then you ask for a V4 record. So you ask for what we call a quad A record of the DNS and then without even waiting for an answer necessarily, you ask for an A record. Now, you bias it. You nobble the race. So it's not the first DNS answer, but if you get back a V4 answer first, you wait 50 milliseconds, five thousandth of a second, half a hundredth of a second, to see if you're going to get back a V6 record. And so what you've actually done is just subtly weigh this speed contest. So you ask for a quad A record, then you back-to-back ask for an A record. By back-to-back, I mean it's about 10 milliseconds in between the two. And then you wait to see what answers you get. If you get back a V4 answer, you wait for 50 milliseconds to see if a V6 one is coming. If it doesn't, just go with V4 and forget it. If it does, don't worry about the V4, go with V6, okay? Now, Slack doesn't do six. So everyone who has V6 is going to ask for a quad A record. How many is everyone? Well, depending on the country you're in, it might be as much as almost everybody, like, you know, India. Even in the US, it's about half of the users out there have V6. And and so while the world average is around, you know, 30-odd percent, in some countries there is a lot of V6. And the folk who have V6 will always ask first for a quad A record. But Slack doesn't have a quad A record, does it? And they've signed their zone. So what you're going to get back is an NSEC record that says no data, no quad A, good try. How do you know there's an A record with the bit vector? You know there's an A record because when it said there's no quad A, it left the bit vector for A set on, yeah? So let's now look at what happened. And here's where we invoke Route 53 and the Route 53 bug with wildcards. Because when the wildcard is used to say, I'm going to use the wildcard to answer this. The NSEC bit vector wasn't clear. So when you ask for a quad A record, as a lot of folk do, it didn't just say, oh, there are other data types against this name, just no quad A. Sorry about that. It said nothing. The entire bit vector was set to zero. So what it said was, there is nothing here. There's no point asking for an A record. There's no point asking for anything. And a lot of people these days, to make the DNS ultimately very, very, very fast, cache the answer. And so as soon as someone loaded up a recursive resolver with this empty NSEC record to say there are no resource records against this name, the resolver then faithfully started using that for all subsequent queries, even for A records where the answer does exist. It's kind of going, but you told me, and it was signed, so you're not lying, are you? There is no record, so I'm not going to ask you again. It's true. It's signed. I believe you. And so instantly, as soon as they passed the DS record up to .com, a whole bunch of folks started seeing failure in Slack. 
because no name in Slack resolved. Because as soon as someone asked for a quad A, this poisoned insect record entered the cursive resolver system, and anyone doing caching on those records and using it to answer subsequent queries immediately learned there were no resource records against Slack.com. Every answer is null. I'm just going to use that answer for every subsequent query that I ever get. Obviously, this is a problem. You've just gone dark. Big problem, particularly with these caches lasting for quite some time. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the caches. Now, that, of course, done a little bit of their homework. And the answer was, well, every record in the DNS has a time to live. In the case of Facebook, that's a very short time to live. And that's what made their problem so bad because once the, the name disappeared from the DNS, short time to live, they were toast. They couldn't haul themselves back up into liveness. Now, in, in this case, Slack really wanted a relatively small DS record time to make sure that they could kind of back out because what they wanted to do was simply suck back in that DS record, withdraw it, I didn't mean it, and hope that everyone was listening. And so they set a TTL, I think it was one hour. Now, I don't know if any of you have played with this, dear listener, or you, Robbie, but I've played a little bit with this. I've got a domain name of my own, and I set the TTL to say one hour, and then I ask Google, what's the TTL, Google? And Google says, no problem, Jeff, six hours. What? Dot com, by default, the TTL is 24 hours. You see, TTLs are guidance, not a rule. You can set whatever TTL you like, but you're merely nudging the recursive resolver to say, hey, resolver, when you load your cache, I'd like you to keep it for this long, but I'm not you. You're the resolver. Have a good day. Set your own rules. And so when Slack said, oh, my God, I want to unsign, let's withdraw that DS record, and they thought, well, it only had a TTL of one hour. All of this badness will disappear in one hour, right? Wrong. Because (laughs) it got cached up to 24 hours. So the DS record, the one that caused Route 53 to do all the wrong stuff, was busy misdirecting folk for the next 24 hours. And only then did the problem disappear out and was the zone revert back into uh, unsigned again. Reading their account, it was amazing how they were so desperate that they tried to reach out to ISPs and DNS services to try and refresh for them as well. Desperation. I'm like, it's a big service. Lots of folk use Slack and, and they were deep in a bad place. And a lot of their customers were kind of on the tech-savvy edge. They were doing validation. And as soon as you start doing validation, you encounter this problem. So in some ways, their, their favorite target customer, the techie groups, were sitting there going, there is no Slack and no one could fix it for 24 hours. So yes, they were desperately trying to use the telephone to get themselves out of this mess. Thank God there's still an out-of-band telephone, eh? Because as soon as we put everything on the DNS, there's no coming back, is there? <laughs> so they wrote all this up, and it's kind of very hard to fault the engineers at Slack. I think all of us, I'm not sure if we've been so thorough in our prep work, 
so meticulous in the way they'd planned this. There were a few interesting assumptions going on, which were kind of highlighted in, in their very comprehensive post-mortem analysis. What lessons did they learn? One, TTLs are never right. It's almost in case, no matter what you set them, recursive resolvers know better than you, don't they? And if you want the name to persist for longer, Facebook's issues, whatever value you give is probably not long enough. And if you're wanting to do a change at a certain time and you want the TTLs to be basically zero, those time to lives are kind of up to the recursive resolver and they're always too long. And Slack wanted a small TTL so they could back out. In actual fact, the TTL was effectively 24 hours. So uh, the assumption that they made that they could get their way out of this mess by unsigning a domain was a very, very unsafe assumption. And, And I think the big lesson is in some ways going from unsigned to signed is a big step and you can't back out quickly. You're stuck with it. And had they known that in advance they might have tested their wild card a little bit harder against Route 53 and no data. And so that was, I suppose, the next thing, test, 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 test. Now, they had done a lot of testing. That strange combination of an error in Route 53, you actually had to use Route 53 to find it, and the whole issue of aggressive NSEC caching on the part of recursive resolvers, because it wasn't Route 53 that was hanging on to the zeroed out bit vector in the NSEC record. It was folk like Google. Google that serves one third of the world's users. They were doing aggressive NSEC caching. So this sort of cascading failure that A did something wrong, B learned something wrong and hung on to the wrong thing for hours, then caused this sort of cascading, whoops, it's broken and we can't fix it. We're just going to live with this. Which should have been common knowledge, shouldn't it? I mean, surely they've been rolling out this for other customers as well. You'd have thought so. You know, they're meant to be the folk who run the big DNS for all of us. This is one of these issues about centralised service. A lot of folk do use Route 53 and, you know, either folk weren't looking, which is possible, although having your name go black you kind of think it was a bit of a big signal, right? But there are many things in DNSSEC that don't quite work that blithely just persisted. I'll give you a different example. Uh, it's the .org domain, which was one of the early folk who did DNSSEC signing. But the way they'd used the hardware to do signing, the answers that were being given were magically bigger than 1,500 octets in size. Now, this caused fragmentation in UDP. And if you didn't handle fragmentation in the DNS in UDP, and that's a bit of a mouthful, but basically what it means is if you can't cope with corner cases, you're toast. And around 2 to 3% of users or their DNS systems can't cope with fragmentation. And dot all blithely said, no, no problem. Didn't see a problem. You kind of go, but I don't think you're looking hard enough. There is a problem, but you're just not seeing it. And so it might have been a bit of a corner case for some people, but again, just brushed off. Uh, Slack were monitoring and monitoring intensively 
But again, it's pretty hard to miss a domain that goes completely dark. Do folk use wildcards? Maybe they don't. Because again, it wasn't that the other zones weren't working just fine. It was the wildcard that trumped it. Because if there wasn't a wildcard, you wouldn't have noticed the problem. And the NSEC record would have been discarded had not some resolvers started to do aggressive NSEC caching and used that bad NSEC record to answer all subsequent queries without rechecking. But it had validated. Why should they recheck? And so we get into this problem. So had other people encountered it? Maybe not. Maybe this was one of those, wow, the gods were smiling on you. You just played the magic sequence and bingo, you know, you're in the sin bin for 24 hours. Well done, you. But coming back to what you said at the start, Jeff, it's great that they've actually shared this experience, isn't it? So what can we learn from these situations? It is wonderful. It is, you know, it's a mark of they didn't just say, we had an oopsie, it's all fixed, trust us, uh, we're okay. And it's interesting that this is actually a victim, not the perpetrator. Slack, we're using and trusting Route 53. Have you seen a comprehensive analysis from Amazon as to why they were using a DNS system that gave the wrong answer in their NSEC records when there was no data? No, neither have I. And so the victim did a damn fine job. Um, The folk who had the bad code were as silent as they come. So kudos to one and negative kudos to the other in this case. We've got to do a better job. Does this case in your mind provide further proof of the complexity of DNSSEC and the need for it to be changed? Any kind of signature system is complex. And and particularly when it's a bolt-on, it is complex. It takes a lot of moving parts. You've got to worry about a lot of things. Packet sizes, timing. What actually happens in in the various corner cases where there's no data or there's no such domain name? How does that get cached? How do we control caching? As someone said, um, it was actually someone who works in the APNIC labs, Joao Damas, has said many times, you know, the DNS is a lot like chess. There's actually only a very few parts to it. And the rules of movement are really insanely simple. But the positions you can find yourself in are endlessly complex. And and DNSSEC is a classic example of one of these where it it all looked relatively simple as a bolt-on, but the way we've driven it, you know, there are these endless combinations that just cause heartache. You know, you start with the CNAME records and, and the fact that some validators don't like CNAMEs at the apex, correctly so. You, you look at the wildcard issue with NSEC, and I haven't even mentioned the complexities of NSEC 3. If NSEC was only going to be used for no such name, you wouldn't worry about the no data thing. If there was a separate response for that resource record type doesn't exist, we wouldn't have had this problem. But when we overlapped 
no domain with no data and did the whole lot in one record, which sounded very economical because, after all, saving bits is wonderful. Not that was sarcastic. I think that's when the original tripwire was designed and built, and that was some decades ago. Once that tripwire was out there, we then came along with this next really good idea that built on the previous idea. The next really good idea is if we hung on to these NSEC records, we could replay them against future queries. Now, the best way to use the DNS to attack the DNS is the so-called random name attack, where I sit there as one or a few million bots, and I start doing randomname.jeff.com. Now, that name is never cached, is it? Because it's a new name, so it's not in anyone's cache. So every single recursive resolver that gets a new query for randomname.jeff.com um, is going to pan that to the authoritative name server for jeff.com, which will promptly melt. What you want is the front-end resolvers to effectively cache the fact that only certain names exist in jeff.com and every other name is rubbish. Just send back NX domain. Now, if we cached that NSEC answer, you can use it. Go back to my original example. I think I had a.jeff.com and then g.jeff.com. Any random name between A and G, I can answer with the same NSEC record. I don't even need to ask the authoritative server.jeff.com. It's kind of that name doesn't exist. I told you before, you're not listening. All names between A and G don't exist. Capiche? Which protects it. Well, it protects the authoritative server. And like all these attacks just die because if it's a distributed attack, the front end recursives absorb the attack brilliantly. So aggressive NSEC caching is wonderful. But this is what caused Slack to, to black out because when we actually used NSEC for there is no resource record, the name exists because it's a wild card in the name file. It exists, but that query type you're asking for, that doesn't for any query type. And at that point, zonk, it was black. So again, can I fault Google for using it? No, absolutely. It was a good thing to do. Was it their fault? The problem, I'll bring it all the way back, Route 53 just got it wrong. And once they did, the cascading failure mode said, you're in this hell for 24 hours. You know, there's no way out. Should this deter people from using DNSSEC to sign their domain names? You beat me to the question, Jeff. Wow, what a question. The internet is so toxic it glows in the dark. It is just horrible out there. And increasingly... A lot of our best and brightest are working for the wrong side. And increasingly with bug bounties and everything else, even the so-called white hats are working for the wrong side. And we are endlessly inventive in figuring out how to break things and the DNS is on the target list. And so we have fragmentation attacks, all kinds of attacks that force bad answers into the DNS. Now, I might want to fool you. Yeah. I might want to fool the entity that gave you a domain name certificate. Ooh. Because if I can get my key associated with your domain name, that unlocks an even more horrible set of badnesses 
because I can now pass off as being you and all the victims won't notice any difference at all. One of the more successful attacks in 2019 was based around corrupting the DNS to get a couple of CAs, certificate authorities, Komodo and Let's Encrypt, as I recall, to issue a certificate to the wrong people for names of victims. All of this was based around perverting the DNS. If you can't pervert the DNS, the attack doesn't work. And if you think about this for just a second, a domain name certificate just simply says, you, the holder of that key, are associated with this domain name. No more than that. So if I can attack the DNS... I can still lay everything open because if I can then get a fake certificate issued, the whole certificate system is worthless. And so if we can't protect the DNS, why should you trust the internet? I guess the lesson is that some things are hard to do, but they're necessary to do, aren't they? Especially when it comes to protecting a key foundation of the internet, which still today holds everything up. Well, that's right. That is exactly it. The domain name system is holding everything up. Everything, literally everything these days, from traffic light systems, water systems, money systems, through to even meta, the DNS is holding the lot up. And if you can't trust the DNS, if the answers you get are basically corruptible, then everyone's a victim at some point and we can't stop it. And so you sort of go, but well, DNS sex hard. The answer is, well, yeah, it's hard. Maybe I should outsource it to the experts. Good idea. Who's looking at the experts to make sure that they're actually doing the right thing? Well, I guess it's Slack and others. (laughs) That's right. I mean, we have to be accountable of the experts, don't we? Well, I think too many people were listening to that uh, Mark Zuckerberg when he said move fast and break things because people have moved very quickly and they've broken a lot of things. And I must admit we have been anxious to move into these markets with services and less anxious to comprehensively understand how these services actually work and whether they do precisely what they're meant to do on the label. Now, can I blame Route 53? Geez, that's a good question. You kind of go, but you should have read all the specs. That's a really good answer. So how many RFCs do you need to read to define all of the DNS. How many specification documents? Around 200 or 300, isn't it? In excess of 300 and getting bigger. And more to the point too, they're self-contradictory in many places. So the answer is you should be the, read the right bits from the right specs. And the answer is, well, what are they? And the answer is, well, you're meant to just know. Oops. So uh, we've made it very hard to do the right thing, impossibly hard. And so the way it kind of works is if you use one of the well-known resolver implementations, let's say it's ISC's bind or CZNIC's uh, not or NLNet's unbound, then you're okay. Or, or PowerDNS, you know, if you use one of those, you're fine. If you use anything else, you're kind of on thin ice. That's a pretty lousy answer, isn't it? It's kind of, well, there are four expert you know, vendors in the world and everyone else has a problem. That's not good enough either. So, yeah, we've moved very fast. We've built a wondrous system and there's no doubt the DNS is bountiful. 
you get answers in fractions of a second. You don't even know you're using a phenomenal system that literally is, I think, possibly the most distributed collection we've ever built. It's certainly the most efficient. And the fact that it works at all is a miracle. Absolutely. The fact that it withstands phenomenal attacks second after second, another miracle. The fact that it was designed in a completely different time and space and land, and it still works today in what we've got, yet another miracle. You know, its track record is astounding. And and the fact that there are so few massive stuff-ups that we can spend some time, as we have today, deeply dissecting just one of them is perhaps a miracle. Because if there was one an hour of this scale, um, we wouldn't be using the internet to talk about it. Uh, I don't know what we'd be doing, maybe going outside to play, but we certainly couldn't use it. So in some ways, it's reassuring that these mistakes are so rare, even as they are calamitous for Slack at the time. And again, let me say kudos to Slack for being so comprehensive and thorough in understanding why they had a 24 outage. Kudos to them for being so open about this and allowing the rest of us to understand the deeper issues around it. Should it dissuade you from DNSSEC? Well, I don't think so. There's no plan B. There is no plan B. If you want folk to believe you on the net, you need your name signed to stop a whole bunch of badness happening. And I suppose, well done all of us that we found this problem and fixed it. That isn't the last of them. But as long as we can do at least that, we're better off than just sweeping it under the carpet, which is actually where Route 53 was going before Slack came out and said, that's the problem. I agree, Jeff, that it's great that this misfortune for one company has had a silver lining for the internet community as a whole. And there is still hope for DNSSEC and DNS for that matter. Thanks for your insights as always, Jeff, and taking us for a wander through this interesting case study. And thank you. And uh, next time, oh, I don't know. It's very hard to do this without diagrams, but hopefully the word picture has worked for you. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Jeff. And thanks to everyone who's made it this far. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If so, please do subscribe and tell your colleagues about it. We plan on taking a short break over the holiday period but we'll be back in mid-January for our sixth episode. In the meantime, let us know what you think of the show. And if you've got a story or research to share, get in contact via email, ping at apenic.net or our Apenic social media channels. And be sure to check out the Apenic website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time. <laughs>